Expectation. When you think of Christmas time, expectation is a word I think of often. It is the 22nd of December and whether you are excited or not, whether or more importantly, whether you are ready or not, Christmas is just a few days away. Christmas is coming ominously. If you're that person that's getting ready to have to do the turkey and all the trimmings, Christmas is coming, right? And I say that tonight because I don't think that there's a single other time in the whole of the year that carries such a weight of expectation as Christmas time, is there? In the entirety of the year, whenever you think about the various seasons and festivals and all the stuff that makes up the year, there isn't a single other time of year that carries the weight of expectation as Christmas does. I mean, think about it for a second, right? The first thing is you have the music, right? The music of the season. Uh, Songs like, it's the most wonderful time of the year. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. I wish it could be Christmas every day, right? I know that you've got a little Spotify playlist of Christmas songs, right? When you get a bit blue in October, you stick a bit of buble on, feel a bit better about the world, don't you? Christmas songs, so much anticipation. It's the songs, I think, that are largely to blame for unrealistic expectations of Christmas, right? I mean, who roasts chestnuts on a fire? I mean, is there anyone that's ever done it, right? No, some small child is telling me that they roast chestnuts on a fire, right? Well, that bomb, thank you. Amazing. How were they? Were they any good? Did they eat them? No, who knows, right? Anyway, who roasts chestnuts on a fire? And, And if... You didn't know, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but the weather forecast for Christmas Eve and Christmas Day this year is 8 degrees. So I'm sorry to break it to you tonight, especially if there are children in the house, but it's not going to be a white Christmas, all right? I'm sorry to tell you. You have the songs, and they raise expectations. And then you have the people around Christmas time, don't you? Whether some people in here, there's the expectation of finding love or romance under the mistletoe at a staff Christmas do, right? There's that kind of expectation around Christmas time. Or in the room tonight, there will be parents excited about the return of sons and daughters for Christmas time at home. Or maybe just on another level, you've just, you're just excited about some of your friends coming home for Christmas, people you catch up with every year at this time of the year. You've got the music, you've got the people, and then, of course, you have the presents, right? Let's get to the good stuff. The presents around Christmas time. Every family has a picker, okay? By that, I mean that annoying person that picks at the corners of presents. You know, oh, how did that happen? Oh, it must have happened when I was carrying it into the house. Oh, no, I know what it is. Can I open it now anyway, right? That person, right? That was me when we were growing up in our house. So much anticipation about gifts. Our family is a gift-giving family. If you've done the marriage prep course or you know anything about you know, the love languages, our family is a gifts family. Uh, and so there's always an awful lot of anticipation about gifts in our house. A number of years ago, it was Christmas morning. We're all in the kind of tearing through presents stage, right? There's no etiquette in our family. It's just like a free-for-all. So like the wrapping paper is being thrown everywhere. We're opening the presents. And while we're doing that, we're aware that on the other side of the room, mom is beginning to open up her presents, okay? Mom is one of those like selfless present openers, you know, one of those people that watches as you all open and then sort of quietly opens presents in her own time right? So we become aware mom is opening her presents. Uh, And she's got to the part where she's opening the present that dad got her, right? And there's been the usual collection of bits, clothes, perfume, all that sort of stuff. And then there's this oddly shaped present, right? And it's quite big and it's kind of oddly shaped and it's quite heavy, right? 
And it was, it was, we were all kind of looking around. And so, you know, now, now because we can kind of see mom is doing this kind of oddly shaped present, it's near that point where everybody stops what they're doing. And we're now all looking at mom, like, what's going to be in the present, right? Like, wow, dad, you've really went for it this year. Like, you've outdone yourself. What's it going to be? And, you know, partially we're interested because mom returns approximately 99.9% of every present that she's ever bought, right? She's like one of those people. You get her anything. It's like, you know, you show up the next, well, didn't really suit. You know, and it goes back. Everything goes back. So we're interested because she returns them. We're interested because of kind of the shape and the size of the present. There's expectation. And mom begins to open it. We're all glued in to see what's going to happen. And then she opens it. And dad got her car mats. <laughs> Thank you for being the love of my life. The, you know, the one who bore our children. I love you so very much. Have some car mats, right? Nothing's ever said I love you. Merry Christmas. Like car mats. But that's what we got. Romance is not dead in the Dickinson household. Christmas expectation, right? They go together, don't they? And for us in the Christian church, we can carry a huge expectation too. We've just sung it a few minutes ago, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. And that's exactly what Christmas is to the church. It's the thrill of hope. Christmas is the thrill of hope in the life of the church, the kind of hope, however, that's only met in a saviour. The kind of hope that's only met in a saviour. Earlier tonight, Ricky read these words from Luke 2. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks by night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. There will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And it's this word, Savior, that we're going to focus on tonight as part of our series called Signature that we've been working through through this Christmas season, looking at the names or identities that are given to Jesus that are unpacked in the Christmas story. And tonight's word is Savior. And in many words, Savior is an unremarkable word, right? We hear it all the time. So in football, for example, you talk about new managers that come in and you say things like Duncan Ferguson, Everton Savior, right? We hear things like that. Or you'll see signs up and around the place that say things along the, along the lines of seatbelts save lives. The saving language is not remarkable in the world in which we live. But what does the word Savior mean for us right now? Like if we're going to say we have a savior, what kind of savior is he? What is he like? What are the sorts of things that a savior does? Who is he? What is he like? And tonight I want to just focus in on some of the response that we can see in the passage in Luke 2, okay? For me, in a world that is aching with expectation of all sorts, for me, the tell when something is truly important is in the response, it's not in the saying it. You know, I, I work with young adults all the time and we'll meet for coffee and they'll pour their hearts out a big, about the big dreams of their life. You know, I want to do this, I want to do that. But the way you can tell if something is really it, if something is really significant, is how they respond, is what they do with it when they get the passion or the fire for something in their hearts. It's always the response that tells. 
And the angel proclaims to the shepherds the news. And then all of a sudden, the night sky is lit up with the angels singing. They're responding. And they sing of two things about this Savior that we're going to look at tonight. The two things they say or the two things they speak of are glory and peace. They speak of glory and peace. The first of those is glory. The first word the angels sing of about the Savior is glory. And glory is an interesting word in and of itself, okay? Because glory is one of those things that you can't give, right? You can't ascribe something glory. You can't give something glory. It's just something that someone or something has. You either have it or you don't. Something's got glory or it doesn't, you know? So we talk, whenever you're watching Match of the Day and you get to the bit where they start doing goal of the season or goal of the month and there's like an absolute screamer, somewhere along it, the commentator will say something along the lines of glorious strike, right? Or whenever you get that one, right? That one hot, decent day of the year in Northern Ireland when all of you and everybody else descends onto the North Coast, right? You know that day when you can't get onto Port Stewart Strand and everyone thinks it's brilliant, but actually it's miserable because you just sit in queues all day, right? That day, that really hot day, at some point you will hear a weather reporter or someone on the radio where somebody will say it was a glorious day on the North Coast. Glory. It's an interesting word because it's not like honor which you give. It's not like praise which you give. It's a quality that something or someone has. And the word for glory comes from the Hebrew word that's spelt kabed, but it's said kabod. And it means something like weight or like substance. The angels say glory to God in the highest heaven. In other words, the angels are talking about this Savior as one with the overflowing abundance of something with real weight. Something with substance, something with real meaning, something significant. And the thing is, glory wasn't to be taken lightly, okay? We say the word glory and you can kind of think of it in an airy, fairy kind of way, but it's not. When glory is spoken of or it appears in the Bible, it's serious business, okay? Just take what happens to the shepherds from what we read earlier on. This is what it said. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. Glory arrives and they're terrified. Or when Moses in the Old Testament asked God to just let him see his glory, God responds and says, no one may see me and live. That's how serious this glory stuff is. The sort of glory we're talking about here had real weight. Glory was significant. It was terrifying even because where there is glory, it pushes out things that aren't so glorious. Think of it as something like the theory of displacement, okay? Like when you take a brick, something that has loads of weight, and you throw it into a bucket full of water, what happens is the water comes out because that which has more weight pushes out the thing that has less. And that's what happens when glory arrives. It pushes out the thing that has less weight. Why is that significant? It's significant because the people of the time, people like these shepherds, they were longing for something to change. Much like the moment that we live in and kind of Brexit and America and all of the stuff of the last like four or five years, we have nation after nation longing for something to change. The Romans were in charge. They were the greatest superpower the world had ever known at this point. And superpowers normally, they sustain their power by crushing, oppressing, and pushing out everybody that says anything against them or stands in their way. That's how superpowers work, both today and then. For example, the emperor Octavian, who was later called Augustus, was the adopted heir of Julius Caesar. His name actually meant worthy of worship. 
They thought themselves divine. They considered themselves gods, and that wasn't controversial to say that. People were longing for change. Expectation was sky high. And here the angels speak of something, someone weightier than the ones who thought themselves worthy of praise. The world was hoping that this one of glory would push them out. And then the angel speaks of three things. This is what the angel speaks of. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Savior, Messiah, and Lord. You see, these three terms meant something, right? You see, a Savior took these people back. It kind of refreshed their memory of what it meant to have a Savior. They're talking about like the exodus here, being freed from slavery in Egypt, right? It meant freedom from oppression. And then Messiah, well, that was kind of the coming king. It meant the true king would be on the throne, the same king that the Jews still wait for today. And then Lord, well, that was the term the Israelites had used since the Old Testament. It was the Israelite God. These were loaded words. They just sound like words to us when you hear it, but to them, when they heard it then, they were loaded. They were full of expectation, full of anticipation to a people longing for change, longing for something to shift, longing for something to give. The expectations couldn't be any higher. They couldn't be any higher. And in the world of then, you know, The Romans believed that their strength and their power would save them. Pharisees were confident that their rule keeping would be enough and that a savior would save only them. And Israelites thought a savior would be the one who would set them free. They were looking for a socio-political change. And in lots of ways, we're still the same now, aren't we? All this talk of a savior, all this talk of hope. But in many ways, we're the same in our hearts, aren't we? We just think that if we're strong enough, if we just had enough resource, if we were just powerful enough, then everything would be okay. Or if we just thought we were good enough, right? If I just stopped doing this or that, if I just did a little bit more of that, if I just became good enough, then that would be enough. But it won't. Because all this talk of glory, the promise of a Savior, a Messiah, the Lord, all this expectation. And then you have the shepherds. And they come from the fields that night, from whatever they were doing. And they set out on their journey full of the hope of what they had just heard. And they travel all this way to the inn. And then they travel into the stables as we hear it. It was probably more like the ground floor of the inn in the day. They travel there. And what do they find? They find a baby lying in a manger. All of this talk of a Messiah, the promised Savior, Messiah, a Lord, full of hope, full of expectation. They travel some distance to get there, and all they get is a baby in a manger. And here's the amazing thing. Yet they weren't disappointed. They were full of every hope of something significant that was going to happen. All they got was a baby in a manger. I mean, I'm cool with babies, right? Newborn babies are great. They're pretty amazing in and of themselves. But if I had been promised something as grandiose as that, something as incredible as that, something that was going to change the world as much as that, and then I travel some distance from where I was to get there, and then I get there and all I find is a baby in a manger, you'd be disappointed, wouldn't you? You'd be like mom opening a huge present to find car mats inside. And yet they weren't. How could that be? How could it be that every hope, every fear, every expectation, every longing, 
was met in the face of a baby that night. How could that be? How? Well, because they were really staring at the face of God. They were looking at someone glorious, someone with real weight, someone with real substance, somebody truly significant that day, and they knew it when they saw it. How do I know? Well, what happens next in verse 20 is that it says this, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. You see, all they had seen was a baby, but they had seen enough. So much of the time in our lives, we spend ourselves bringing our expectations of what God should be like to God. You think that God should be this and God should do that and God should smite this person that I don't really like and God should be a certain way because this is the way I think he should be and he shouldn't be this way, he should be that way and we bring these expectations and we load them up on God but yet what did the shepherds do? They found their expectations shift because they really saw him. What do you see in that child tonight? You have this opportunity to look on a savior tonight. And what is it you see when you see the baby in the manger? Is it just a baby? Are you disappointed? Or do you see him tonight and you see enough because you're staring at one who truly carries glory? The first thing the angels speak of is glory. The second thing they speak of tonight is peace. Is peace. I realized this year that I had become officially old, okay? It hasn't been happening over time. It just kind of happened in an instant, right? I just realized it happened because I used to love the day that the house got decorated when I was a child, right? We used to berate mom and dad to take their annual trip into the attic to take really tacky plastic things down, right? And to start the process of decorating the house. And that was one of the best days of the year, decoration day, and I found myself this year like hauling a Christmas tree in the front door, like, oh, the pine needles are getting everywhere and my car's a disgrace and I'm going to have to hoover it afterwards. And I found myself really grumpily saying to my wife, Joy, at one point in the process, do you know something, Joy? I can't stand Christmas decoration day. We're essentially deliberately cluttering our house. That was the moment I knew I was old, right? We're essentially consciously cluttering our house was how I thought of it, right? So the house is in chaos with decorations. Maybe your house, maybe you're one of those people that like has far too many lights outside. You know, one of those people. I don't know if you are. Bless you and your electric bill. But anyway, uh, maybe you're one of those people. The house is in chaos with decorations. Or maybe you've got a house full of people, okay? Maybe right about now, family are coming home. Friends are arriving. You've got some people to stay. If you've got the in-laws, you have my prayers. Uh, but people are coming to stay in your house. The house is in chaos, right? With decorations and people. One of the bizarre things about the Christmas season is that so many cards and images and stories talk about peace. And yet for many of us, peace is the furthest thing we feel whenever we think about Christmas. Like I was in town yesterday trying to finish off our Christmas shopping. I was there for about four hours. I thought I'd be there for one. It was chaos. If you'd said to me yesterday, peace to men on earth, I would have laughed in your face as somebody tried to murder me in Waterstones, right? I mean, it was chaos. Peace is not what we feel when we think about Christmas. And yet the angels talk about peace. The thing is that for the shepherds that night in the fields doing their work, it was not a particularly peaceful time for them either. 
In a wide-angle way, the Romans were in charge. Herod the Tetrarch was in charge in Judea. And he was a notoriously temperamental and unpredictable leader. And then in an even more zoomed-in way, the census was taking place. And so every small town and village was crammed full of people coming back to register. Every house was full. Every inn was full. These small towns would have been chaos. And maybe the shepherds were just thankful for the peace of the hillside that night. Maybe they were just thankful to be in the fields. Maybe it was quieter there than it was in the village. And then that peace gets shattered by the appearance of the angels. And yet this is what they speak of. Glory to God in highest heaven. And on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. You see, they speak of peace. The Savior was going to be about peace. But what did that peace look like? Well, this is what it says. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. These three phrases, good news, great joy, all people. Doesn't that sound good to you where you sit tonight? Good news, great joy, all people. I mean, speaking of news, right? If your day starts like mine, your alarm goes off, you hit, uh, you, you try to like kind of, you know, put it off several times by hitting snooze. Eventually, you awake to the reality of you're going to have to get up. And then at that point, you go on Twitter. And about two minutes on Twitter is enough to like set you into the misery of the world, right? Because the news feeds are all disastrous news. There's been a bomb's gone off here. Someone's been killed here. Someone's been raped here. It's just catastrophic news after catastrophic news, right? It's not like we live in a world that is full of good news. Here's the good news of the Savior. That God has broken into human existence. God has broken into the world. That's the good news. And then they talk about great joy. And again, great joy isn't something that you would say often about the world in which we live, is it? And yet this good news is going to bring great joy because this same Savior, the one of peace, means that you can live your life another way. It means you can lead a life of proper meaning, of real purpose, of true relationship. And at this moment in time in our world where we seem determined to build up walls and become tribal again, our world has never been closer and yet we've never been further apart from people than ever. All people? Really? This good news that God has broken in of great joy that means that your life can be lived with true purpose, true meaning, true relationship is for all people because there is not one thing you can do to cut yourself off from the love of God. No matter how far you are, how far you feel tonight, this one of peace means that you can truly experience good news of great joy for all people tonight. How is it he can do that? Well, that's because the word peace is actually the word shalom. And shalom doesn't just mean peace the way we know the word peace. It means something more like everything in its right place, God's way as he intended it, the world as it should be. And to experience that shalom for ourselves would be for everything in our lives to be as it should be. But the thing is that this world and my life doesn't look like all it should be, does it? And so glory and peace come crashing into this world. They come crashing into my life because here's the truth about Christmas. Christmas is really about the collision between the way things are and the way things should be. 
When you think about Christmas, Christmas is truly about the collision between the way things are and the way things should be. Our lives are broken. Our world is broken. And the truth is that we know it. And only the sort of savior that's prepared to join us in the dirt of humanity, the sort of one who would be born in a stable, only the sort of savior that's prepared to join us in the challenges of all of our lives, the sort of savior that would go all the way to the cross, only a savior like that can do anything about it. The sort of savior who became what we are so we can become like he is. Only the sort of savior who can put all the broken pieces of this world, of our lives, back together, back as they should be, can truly save us. Only the sort of savior whose life meant glory and peace. Only Jesus. This is what C.S. Lewis says. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Keep nothing back. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. This savior, we need to look for him. We need to look at him because the peace we long for, the glory the shepherds saw that night, everything as it should be, can only ever be met in Jesus. Because peace is not the absence of noise or drama or trouble or hurt or hassle or pain or suffering. And I know as I say that, there are some people that are living in the midst of those feelings tonight. Peace is not the absence of something. Peace is the presence of someone, the presence of a savior, this Savior, Jesus, the one of glory and peace. Just as we finish up tonight, you know, I, I realized something recently while watching my daughter. My daughter is three, and I realized that a little while ago that uh, kids of that age do a certain thing, right? And they all do it. Apparently, it's a developmental thing. They eventually learn to do it differently. And I realized it recently that when you point, okay, when you go L and you point, and it could be that you're pointing to stop them careering into like a, a car on her bike or something like that, or whether you're trying to point out chocolate that you're giving to her. But if you say L and you point, small kids do this bizarre thing, which is they don't look where you're pointing. They look at your finger, right? So you're going like L and she's like looking at my finger. I'm like, no, that way, right? They look at your finger. They don't look where it points. And here's the thing, right? Christmas time is a time where we are saturated with Christian images, symbols, and meaning. There are nativity scenes in just about every shop. There's probably Christmas cards in your house right now depicting scenes from the Christmas nativity story. It is everywhere around us. I mean, this Christmas day, Stormzy, the grime artist who headlined Glastonbury this year, will read Luke 2, right? The same passage that uh, Ricky read earlier. He will read Luke 2 on BBC One as the end of the Christmas day programming. That's how everywhere Christmas imagery and story and symbol is and if we're not careful we just see the images again and again and again we see the stable again we look at the manger as N.T. Wright called it the most famous animal feeding trough in all history we just focus on carols and services and songs we'll find ourselves looking at the finger and not at the savior that it's pointing to this Christmas C.S. Lewis said look for him. The shepherds went that night 
looking for him. And they find him. He is here. He is here tonight. The challenge is to look at him. Every hope, every fear, every longing, ache, and purpose is met in him. If only we would see him this Christmas. When you see the manger, look past the crib. See the Savior that's inside. And let all of your expectations be shifted in the face of the child that you see. When you see the manger, look past the crib. I'm just going to pray, and then we're going to move on with the rest of our service tonight. So let's pray together.